to Discount Ticket to a World Unknown. I'm Catherine. And I'm Michaela. And we are going to talk about chapters 11 through 13 of Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. Um, so I guess we'll just go ahead and start out with chapter 11. We kind of talked about some of what happens in this chapter in the last episode because we talked about the troll attack and Snape's leg. But in this chapter, when they open it up, we do actually get to see Snape's injury because it starts out with them reading the Quidditch book and then Snape stealing it and Harry going back to get to Snape to get the book again and finding the injury, which is completely different from the movie. (laughs) Absolutely different. I do talk about the fact that Snape doesn't like they don't express how badly he was injured by fluffy they really don't no they just kind of show some slashes on his leg and like that's it they definitely go into more depth about it in the book yeah and then in the book snape's character i feel like he searches for ways to punish harry to punish gryffindor yeah. But in the movies, he just seems to kind of avoid Harry a little bit. Yeah, that's true. Because at the beginning of this chapter, Snape yells at Harry in the group because he's got this book outside and says you aren't supposed to take library books out of the school or something like that. And then takes points away from Gryffindor, even though wasn't it Hermione's book or something like that? I'm pretty sure Hermione gave it to Harry because he was talking about how he was so thankful that for Hermione because they became friends mm-hmm. and she he had this big Quidditch match coming up and he said that he was so thankful for the fact that Hermione was there and gave him that book to study on and learn about all of the fouls and stuff that yeah you, that you get in Quidditch yeah so yeah Snape is definitely going out of his way to make Harry's life a living hell. Exactly. And Harry further, and the group. <laughs> oh, yes. And it further incriminates him as a character and, like, the suspect oh, yeah. of the book. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Definitely. And I think that was kind of the point. Because <laughs> J.K. Rowling does a lot of the red herring type of stories where she gives you who you think think is gonna be the bad guy and then she like twists the story and you're like what the hell um so I think that's what she was trying to do with this even though it was kind of not necessarily obvious but like this is definitely more of a kid's book like you can kind of pick up more on the next steps of the chapters yes the because Harry is such a kid it is a kid's book so there are a lot of bad things happening And it's not really a happy book, obviously, because his parents die. He's orphaned to his evil uncle. So this one I wouldn't necessarily say is the dark book. I wouldn't say that it's, but it's definitely got dark tones to it. And it, I think it's funny that they're described as kids books because they have kind of more underlining themes that is kind of more for a mature audience. But this book itself is definitely more of the kids' book. Yes, the and then late, the later series gets, like, yes. the older he gets, the more intense it is yes. for older readers. Yes. I think that if I would have read these when I was 
younger when they came out, I probably would have grown up with Harry and would have understood. <laughs> now I'm an adult and I'm like, oh, Harry. <laughs> oh, Harry. Oh, you're just so naive. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but yes. um, anyway, so chapter 11 is called Quidditch. I don't think we actually read the um, name of the chapter. Uh, so the, this chapter is called Quidditch. And so this is the first time that we actually get to see a Quidditch match. And they, a lot of this match is kind of in the book, in the movies too. So there's not much, there's not the first much. Match, the first match is in the movie. Yes. And then we address later that that second Quidditch match is not in the yes. movies. So this, this is the only Quidditch match that's in the movies. They only have one in the movie, I think. Yeah. And it's later that they have two they quidditch really isn't in the movies very much and i think it's probably because it costs so much to make the the quidditch like scenes because they're mostly green screen and like animated so i can understand why but um there are a lot more quidditch matches in the books just heads up um but this one is in the movie and this is this is the one where we meet lee jordan and get to hear his commentary on the games which I absolutely loved. I thought it was hilarious. Yes, his commentary was so entertaining. I really wish that they would have put that in the movies because he would have been so entertaining. And for such a young kid to be talking and, you know, directing the games and the Quidditch match and everything. And and it's just what he says. It's such a character. And I really wish they would have put him in there. Yeah, well, he is in there. They do... But have he's him not a little much bit. of a character. No. He does the commentary, I think, for this the Quidditch match in the movie, but he doesn't do as, like, they, they only give him one little shot, and then that's it. Yeah. I think that, because I remember um, perf- uh, McGonagall hitting him for saying, like, the one Gryffindor player was cute or whatever over the commentary. I'm pretty sure that was in the movies. But everything else was not. Like, you don't really get any more of Lee Jordan other than that, like, specific section. And then my the rest favorite, of it's... My favorite is whenever the, was it the bludger that soared to Harry? And yes. it got a penalty or something? Yeah. And he made a comment about that. And McGonagall was like, Jordan, stop. This is the last time I'm warning you. And it was yeah. just, it was absolutely great because he just kept going kept antagonizing kept on and it was so good yeah he it was it was like something where the Gryffindors got um an unjust foul or something like that yes and he was like uh he was he was like trying he was he was not being unbiased at the beginning but then McGonagall kept yelling at him so he kept trying to be more um (laughs) more unbiased but he still feel like he couldn't do it he was like, this is the, for the unrightful foul or something like that at the end. And she was like, this is your last warning. <laughs> uh, yeah, he is, he is a character, but he's actually Fred and George's best friend. So it makes sense why he's such a character because like their relationship kind of matches together. Like gravitates <laughs> to like. Yes, like they're all troublemakers. So it makes sense. <laughs> Um, but in this Quidditch match, um, we uh, see a lot more conversation with the 
um, people in the stands more than we do in the movie. And one of the things that I thought was funny because I thought it was funny earlier in the book was when Dean brings up soccer and he's like yelling at the ref in the Quidditch match or whatever, saying that he should be off the field, like throw a red flag or something like that. And someone asks him what he means. And he's like, well, that's what they do in soccer. And Hagrid's like, well, that's what we should do. (laughs) I just thought that was so funny. Because he says someone could get injured or Harry could get injured. And that's what we should Yeah, I yes. love that part. Yeah, so I was like, all right, Hagrid, I like this. <laughs> and then we bring up the fact that not a lot of people actually know what's going on in the muggle world. Yeah. The fact that he compared soccer to Quidditch. Everyone was like, what are you talking about? Yeah, yeah, like they didn't understand what soccer was. And then they thought it was I, I just think it's hilarious that they were like oh yeah that's a smart idea we should change the rules I'm like you think <laughs> you think maybe I mean I didn't make this game up but uh there's a lot of issues with it <laughs> exactly so during this quidditch match the everything's happening right um Harry is searching for the golden snitch and then all of a sudden his broom loses control I love this part in the movie. I love it. The only thing is, is I feel like they change things in a good way for the movies compared to the books because yes, things are different and little details like Professor Quirrell was knocked over by Hermione in the process of getting to Snape to stop the spell. And that wasn't how it happened in the movies. So later on, you learn, obviously, if spoiler alert, reading and uh, listening yes. to this if you haven't read the end of this book you should probably not listen to the next two podcast episodes <laughs> absolutely but, but anyways <laughs> yeah so later obviously if you're listening you know what's happened in the books you're listening along and coral is the bad guy mm-hmm. coral was the one doing the spell and then you learn that instead of snape doing the spell the curse on harry's broom mm-hmm. it is coral well, the difference is, is because in the movie, they're in the stands together. Coral and Snape are near each other. And I then think Hermione, Coral's behind Snape. Yes, he's behind Snape. And then Hermione runs underneath the bench or wherever they're sitting on. Mm-hmm. And then she sets fire to Snape's foot or cape or something. It's his cape, I believe. Yes. And that fire caused Coral to lose focus. Well, in the books... Hermione knocked Quirrell over and that's how he lost his concentration. Yes, which I think makes more sense in the whole scenario because I don't think Coral is a very um, detail-oriented person just by his kind of like the personality you get from him. Like he's a very anxious person and like I don't think that he, if he was concentrating on Harry's broom like he says he was and was trying to do this curse that he would have seen that until someone like I'm pretty sure in the movies Quarrel was the one that saw the fire and that's when Snape saw it and in the books it makes more sense that she knocked Quarrel down to get to Snape than it does for Quarrel to be the one that realizes Snape's cape is on fire yeah so that part (laughs) in my opinion does like that is great it's better in the book obviously yeah but I mean if we're honest 
the book doesn't do the scene justice where Harry catches the golden snitch. It's kind of an outside narrative or anything. And you just see it happen and you don't actually experience it. And it's not such a great accomplishment like it is in the movie. Yeah, that's very true because I in the books you're kind of in the stands watching it instead of like and you're listening to everyone else talk while it's happening instead of like being in Harry's perspective and watching him like catch the snape in his mouth or catch the snitch in his mouth catch the snape good grief. Oh. <laughs> The other thing that's different that I don't truly understand, I think it's a little weird, but when Hermione sets Snape's cape on fire, she picks up the flame and puts it in a jar after Snape has realized that his cape is on fire. And she does not do that in the movie. No, she does not. I don't really know why. My only thing that I can think is that it's Hermione's famous blue fire and that's why she picks it up because she doesn't want Snape to know that she's the one that did it. Yeah. Because I'm pretty sure she's the only one that ever makes blue flames come out of her wand. So I want to say that that's why she picks it up. But I think that it's an interesting part of the, the whole situation. Like it's not something that I would have thought of as I'm trying to get Snape to stop doing what he's doing to Harry's brew. Exactly. And before the very ending of this chapter, I just love how, how would you explain it? I can't say senseless because Hagrid is very intelligent, but I just don't understand how he can just give up details about Fluffy. Oh, yes. Yep. Yep. At the very end of the chapter, he just admits it out in the open. Then he's like, oops. Yeah. I, I think it, not that he's I agree he's not necessarily senseless because he he is very knowledgeable I think it's more of that he does and this might be a little bit of a controversial like comment but I don't think that he has healthy boundaries with Harry and so he just kind of like talks and talks things out and doesn't realize what he's saying until afterwards and then he's like oh you probably shouldn't have known that like <laughs> Like, I think that's more of it, is that he just kind of sees Harry as his best friend and doesn't think about what's coming out of his mouth. (laughs) And there's also the fact that he was the one who delivered Harry as a baby to Dumbledore. And I feel like he believes that they have this relationship or this relationship that they should have had. And so because of everything that happened, he is so lenient with Harry and they are like best friends. But which is a good thing because in a situation where you're thrown into the new world like Harry was, he needed somebody to help him along and, and, you know, help him figure things out if he was in trouble. And Hagrid is exactly that. But the fact that he does admit Nicholas Flamel. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, he, and this is not the only scenario where he gives out information that he probably shouldn't. And then he's like, you didn't hear that. that's just kind of who he is for the next like six books (laughs) it's fine (laughs) um but yes I and I think I honestly think that it is part of like um his not I mean unhealthy boundaries because he's supposed to be this older like role model for Harry and he kind of becomes more of a best friend 
to Harry. And so I think it's more of like, that's the bound, like he loses his adult boundary when he's with Harry because he forgets that Harry doesn't need to know everything that Hagrid knows. <laughs> Absolutely. So. And he's gamekeeper, Hagrid is. So yes. he's not really a professor. He's not a teacher. So he doesn't have that responsibility to be that figure for the children. And so that makes sense as to why Harry doesn't see him as someone to look out for like the other teachers. Yeah, that's very true. That's really it from this chapter that I can think of. Oh yeah, that's right there is whenever Hagrid says Nicholas Flamel, that's where it ends. So and then Hagrid looks furious with himself. Well, the next chapter is chapter 12, The Mirror of Erised, and I would just like to, to point this out because I don't know if you know this. Erised is desire spelled backwards. Honestly, I didn't know that. I barely knew how to pronounce the mirror. <laughs> I was sitting there and I was like, how do you pronounce that? Oh. You know, I might have pronounced it wrong. That is how I, I have always pronounced it. Yeah. It doesn't really give you like a pronunciation, oh, what's called, like keywords, like how to pronounce this. So I think that any, as until she pronounces it herself, I don't know if any of us will ever know what I'm supposed to pronounce it. Yeah. So that's an interesting fact. I did not know that. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? Yes. <laughs> So the chapter starts off, it's Christmas, it's the holidays, and I just want to point out that the Weasley twins are at it again. They yes, bewitch they a snowball to bounce off of the back of Coral's turban. Okay, the point that I want to get is they're literally throwing snowballs in Voldemort's face. Yes. And I love that. Yes, they are. They don't know it, but yes, they are. <laughs> They're literally chucking snowballs right at Voldemort. When I first read this, I had to stop and laugh because when you watch the movies first, before you read the books, you know every detail. You know everything, almost every detail. Yes. So you're sitting there reading it and you're like, oh my God, I know that's Voldemort behind the turban. Mm -hmm. So what the heck? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It was so funny. Yep. Yep. <laughs> I read that and I was like, hmm. And and it always makes me wonder if they knew that, like after they found out everything after the end of the book, when um, <laughs> everyone at the school finds out what happened, it makes me wonder if they were like, oh, we threw snowballs at Voldemort. Like if they actually thought about that afterwards or I if mean, they were just I like, would. I would, so they had to. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Um, but at the after we hear about Weasley Weasley's throwing snowballs or bewitching snowballs, um, then we get to Malfoy trying to be a bully to Harry and Ron, and he tried to make fun of Harry not being or almost being thrown off his broom, but couldn't get anywhere because no one thought it was funny because they were all impressed by Harry being able to stay on his broom. And so there then, goes another fact, the fact that Malfoy, Harry has all this attention on him yeah. and Malfoy doesn't like it. So that is why he comes up with all of these bullying yes. techniques. Yes. So Malfoy is always so jealous of how much um, attention Harry gets and like the whole scenario with him staying on his broom and Malfoy not being able to get a rise out of anybody 
he decides to go back to cheap shots and make fun of Ron's poorness and Harry's abusive family. Like, dude. And I love, I love how the fact that Malfoy is making all of these comments about his abusive family, Harry's abusive family, and about how he's not loved and how he's not going home and that he's not going to get presents. Meanwhile, inside of Harry's head, he's saying, I actually love the fact that I'm not going home. This yes. is the best thing that could happen to me. So there's yeah. nothing Malfoy can he's say. Like, he's like praising Jesus at that moment. Thank God I don't have to go home. Like, I don't care what Malfoy says. He doesn't understand. And Harry, or not Harry, Malfoy can get a rise out of Ron for like the being poor. But Harry doesn't always like give Malfoy a rise for the abusive family type thing. Like Harry's kind of like, you're right they don't love me but I've got a better place here like he doesn't always respond to that which I think is kind of funny that Malfoy still continues to like bully him about that even though Harry doesn't always respond to it yeah and I haven't read past the second book I started the third one I haven't really read through the series so I'm not sure if it correlates very much but in the movies I'm pretty sure that he continues with that trend Malfoy does he does. He, he continues to try to make fun of Harry's abusive family. It never really gets a rise out of him. And I feel like the only time that he gets a real rise out of Harry is whenever Sirius Black comes into the picture. Yeah. I think at one point, Draco Malfoy said something about Sirius Black after he died, I'm pretty sure. I think and so. I'm pretty sure that's the one time that Harry snapped. Yeah, for the most part. Um, Malfoy tends to get a rise out of Harry for other people's like the other comments he makes towards other people and not usually towards the comments Malfoy makes about him so it just makes me it I so I don't under like most bullies would stop uh, going on that trend and would find something else to make fun of him for to get a rise out of but apparently Malfoy is a terrible bully because he just keeps going on that the cheap shots (laughs) But anyways, we're on to the Christmas scene. Oh, yes, the Christmas scene. And it's so sad that Harry wakes up thinking, I'm not getting any presents. You know, I don't have a family. They don't care if I celebrate Christmas. They've never really cared that I celebrate Christmas. But he wakes up and there's this beautiful scene for Harry. Presents, everything. And I feel like in the movie, they don't really do the Christmas scene very well there is this part where harry realizes the joy of christmas what christmas is supposed to be like and it's so sad that harry never really understood the magic magic of christmas like he never had a good christmas so it was never something he got to look forward to he never really got presents like and so it's sad to watch him experience the first christmas that actually like shows him that people care about him And then for him to be, like, so excited about the feast, like, I would be excited about that feast, and I love Christmas, but for him to, like, never have an amazing Christmas, like, this whole thing is so overwhelming for him, and they don't, they don't give it justice in the movie. No, they really don't, and there's a scene between the Weasleys that I felt was very, very important, because they show in the movie that Ron is staying, but they don't really go in depth with the fact that all the Weasleys are staying at the school because their parents are traveling to go see, was it Charlie? Yes, I believe it's Charlie in Romania. Yes. 
And there's this scene where they're a family that they come together, the Weasleys and Harry, and they have this really magical moment and they don't bring that up in the movies. Yeah, like the the moment where they're all wearing the Weasley sweaters. Yes. That we're talking about. Yeah, they they kind of hit on it in the movies, but it's never any good, like the justice that it deserves because it just shows how much the Weasleys already care for Harry that they're going out of their, like his mom, Ron's mom went out of her way to make Harry his own Weasley sweater for Christmas because Ron told his mom that he didn't expect anything for Christmas. Like that just shows you how much like she already views him as her son and is like so willing to like use any extra resources that they have to give him some type of Christmas. Even though they're on the poor side, like she still wants him to get something, which just shows more of the like Weasley, like how much the Weasleys care. Exactly. And honestly, if it were me, I would just adopt Harry. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I would adopt Harry. I would not let him go back to that abusive family. And the thing is, is after he gets locked in his bedroom in the second book and they rescue him, they know about what had happened. And then in the end, he still goes back to the Dursleys. Yeah, um, that gets explained better in the books. So you'll kind of understand why. And it will kind of give the Weasleys a justified arc. I'm not going to go too much into it, but they do try their best to get Harry out of that situation and there's push against it. But yeah, yeah, the books explain more and it and it makes more sense on why, even though the Weasleys love Harry so much and are doing so much for him, why Harry still goes back to that situation. So because- it's Christmas, he's getting <laughs> presents. Yes. And then he gets the cloak of invisibility. Yes, he does. A lovely present. That is all <laughs> in the movie. Yeah. But I do want to point out the first thing that he does with the cloak, he uses it on his own. He feels like it is his time to use it because it was his father's. Yeah. And the first time Harry looked into the mirror when he found the mirror after all of that happened. In the movie, I do have to ask, were there multiple members of his family in the movie in the mirror or was it just his parents? It was just his parents. Okay. I'm so pretty sure that's just his parents in the movie. Yes. Well, in the book, it was multiple members of his family. Yeah, it was everyone that he didn't know. Yeah. And, and yeah. then you go back and you and there's so many details that are different. And I get they wanted to speed the timeline along the timeline. Well, and they probably didn't want to pay all those actors to stand in to be his family. <laughs> exactly. I'm um, sure that was part of but it. <laughs> the timeline, it just doesn't fit because Harry goes on his own to find this mirror. He finds it after trying to look in the restricted section. Yes. And that, I'm pretty sure in the movie, that same night, he goes back to find Ron, wakes him up, and then takes him to the mirror. And then he stays after Ron goes back to bed or something. Or maybe that was the ne- another night. But I, in the movie, they make it like it's one night. But in the uh, books, it's multiple nights. It's been a while since I've seen the movie, so I'm trying to remember. I think that they did make it into two nights. Because I want to say that... Well, they might have made it into one. I don't know. It's been a while since I've seen this movie. But I, I did remember. They Harry. do at least make it into two nights where Harry 
and then Ron see it, and then the Dumbledore like a, confronts him. Yes, and then later on, Dumbledore confronts him. The thing that I do have to agree with is that Harry goes to this mirror a lot more in the book than he does in the movie. Like there is more time between him finding the mirror and Dumbledore confronting him. Because I want to say that I want to say that it was like about a. I, I mean, they don't necessarily give us a full timeline of how long he goes to this mirror. But he at least goes to it multiple times before Dumbledore confronts him. And at least one of those times Ron goes with him. But yeah, in the movie, they only show his mom and dad. And in the book, they show all of the Potter family, which I thought was interesting because in the book, they talk about how there's multiple people with um, his eyes his mom him and his mom's eyes but then they call him all the potter family and i was like yeah that doesn't fit very no (laughs) the eyes are her side of the family so it would be like petunia's side so i but i also they didn't fully like explain everything so it makes me wonder if like um most of the people were potter family and then there was like his mom's side of the family that was on there that he never met because he only knows Aunt Petunia and Uncle Vernon. But I don't know. I thought that was weird. Because <laughs> I was like, wait, if there's multiple people with green eyes, then it's not all the Potter family. I don't know. <laughs> it does make me wonder, was there any other members of the Potter family or um, his mother's family, like anybody that could have taken him in? I feel like there should have been someone else. You can't tell me that every single member of both sides of the family are dead, except for the aunt and uncle. Um, I think that that's implied, that the aunt and uncle are the only living relatives left. I think a majority of the Potter family died in Voldemort. And I don't know this for a fact, but I think it's implied in the books that a majority of the Potter family dies due to Voldemort and so I don't think there's anyone on the Potter side of the family that is alive however they don't necessarily go into um his mom's side of the family but I would assume that it's also implied that Aunt Petunia and Uncle Vernon are the only ones left but we also never meet anyone other than Uncle Vernon's family so that's why I'm thinking that it's implied that Aunt Petunia is the only living relative left to his parents. Yes. And another thing to think about is the fact that Aunt Petunia expresses how much her parents loved Lily. And I feel like if I had a relationship with my parents like that, or I felt left out, I wouldn't want a relationship with my side of the family. I would want to try to keep things as normal as possible. That's true. But I think for the sake of the story, I think that yeah, everyone but Aunt Petunia and Uncle Vernon are dead because that would that would that would be the only explanation for why he gets put in that shitty situation. Otherwise, you would think that he would go to his grandparents, but I don't think that he ever. I don't even think that when he was with his parents that they ever went and saw any other family. So I'm thinking that they were all dead by then. But I don't know. Yeah. So we're at the mirror. Dumbledore finally confronts him and they had this conversation about the fact that the mirror showed them their deepest desires. Yes so Harry and Dumbledore have a conversation of what the mirror is and then they talk about what Harry saw and what Ron saw and then Harry asks what Dumbledore sees in the mirror 
And Dumbledore says that he sees a pair of socks, like getting a pair of socks and putting them on his feet. And Harry says something at the end where he's like, I, he wasn't quite sure if Dumbledore was telling the truth, but he realizes that that was kind of a personal question. So it just makes me wonder what Dumbledore sees in the mirror. What do you think he sees in the mirror? It's kind of a hard question. It is a very hard question because you really have to look to the future of the series. Yeah. And if Dumbledore is back or if there's this moment where Dumbledore and Tom Riddle had this relationship or, you know, anything, I feel like Dumbledore would be preparing. He would be thinking 10 steps ahead. Yeah. So maybe he might be searching for a confrontation between him and Voldemort or Horcruxes or anything like that. I mean, he could be seeing Harry get the stone. Like, you know what? That could have been why he decided to put the mirror in the chamber or under the trap door. Yeah, well, Ashley, my, and I have a theory about this. I believe that Dumbledore had already planned on this mirror being down there. And I honestly think that Dumbledore can kind of see the future just from like everything in these books and the movies. I feel like he's kind of all knowing. So I think that Dumbledore kind of saw that Harry was starting to get involved in everything that was going on and that they were trying to figure out what was being hidden and were noticing some weird behavior from the teachers and so I think that he purposely put the mirror where Harry could find it and knew that Harry would take this invisibility cloak and go walking around the school and um so I think that Dumbledore did all of that on purpose I think that he really kind of set Harry up for the end of this book so if he can see the future at least just a little bit that is explained why he kind of encourages kind of helps Harry get involved with this mystery because he does see that Harry plays a huge role in anything Voldemort. Yeah, I think that uh, with with everything that kind of plays in these books, I think that um, Dumbledore is very aware of the connection between the two. And I think that he was not necessarily um, setting Harry up for his doom, but trying to help Harry in any way he could to help Harry be successful because I think Dumbledore already saw that Harry was going to get involved regardless of if he knew everything that was going to happen and I think Dumbledore was kind of like maybe I should make sure that he knows what he's going up against (laughs) but anyways that's just kind of what I was thinking makes me wonder what was I don't think she ever tells us and that's okay but it just makes me wonder what he might have seen in the mirror since it's supposed to show us our deepest darkest desires what would your deepest darkest desire be you know I I don't know maybe like having a famous book series I I really don't I mean that I could see that being one of them because that's always been like a desire of mine because I've always wanted to have a like New York bestseller book that I've wrote but I also kind of now that I'm older I think that it might have changed and it might be more like family oriented now like having children or like the career that I want or like I don't it might be along those lines but I don't know could be anything (laughs) 
could be me wanting chocolate heck if I know like I think that it would be based on the day like like Harry's changes at the end of the book like he sees his parents at first and then he sees the stone being put in his pocket so like I think that it could change any day that you were standing in front of that mirror (laughs) well of course and honestly my opinion on the bestseller books I in my opinion would not prefer to be as famous as you know JK Rowling because where comes fame comes a fall yeah you have to live up to that new reputation anything that you write isn't going to compare to that bestseller so I would desire to just put my voice out there put my mind out there and have people enjoy it honestly that's true that's true I've always had this like desire to have a bestseller become a movie so that's always been something that I've always wanted I don't necessarily think that it that I would want it now but as I was growing up I always wanted to write a book that was like so good that they wanted to make it into a movie like (laughs) like the Harry Potter books but oh well definitely and I can see that desire I have that desire like writing something that someone would feel this need to make their own, to put out there, to make it bigger. Yeah. Um, and it is nice to have that fuzzy feeling to know that someone desires your work so badly that they want to use it as their own or, you know, do it their own way. Yeah. But I don't think I would actually give in to making it a movie. It would feel good to have offers, offers on it. But I wouldn't do it just because a lot of times, most of the time, books are so much better than the movies. Yes. You can't incorporate those good things about the books into a movie. It's not, it's going to lack that magical feel that the book has. Very true. Very true. And it's going to miss a lot of like the character development that you work so hard on and that kind of stuff. But that has always been like a, little secret desire that I've always wanted who knows it'll ever happen I can't even get myself to finish writing a book so I gotta finish that first before I can reach any other (laughs) desired goals but it'd be cool I also don't know if I'd be able to handle all that fame though I think that (laughs) I think that I would be like go away (laughs) what would you see in the mirror I honestly am not sure because there are a lot of things that I do desire out of life. I probably see myself traveling. I see myself having fun traveling, uh, visiting the world, experiencing things. That is a lot of what I desire, especially lately. But I would just want to accomplish that. And there's a certain point in life that you reach a certain age where traveling you don't get the opportunities that you would at a young age you know you're an older couple and you're told that you can't zip line because there are risks at your age yeah so I see myself traveling at a young age I see myself exploring gathering material for books future books anything like you have to experience life in order to write about it. And that would be a great desire of mine. I could see that. That's a good desire to travel. I agree. <laughs> but anyways, moving on. Um, chapter 13, Nicholas Flamel. Oh, yes. So in this chapter, 
um it's after christmas break everyone's back at the dorms i believe and um neville comes falling into the dorm room the common room whatever they call it um i'm gonna call it dorm room they come falling into the dorm room and he is his legs are locked together and the thing that i think might be different from this scene to the movie is I don't think that Neville has, I don't think that, well, one, I don't think this is in the movie at all. And if it is, I don't think that the curse that's used on Neville is the leg locking curse. I think they use the full body curse on him. I don't know, because I was reading it and I was like, I don't remember this part being in the movie. And then I don't remember them ever saying the incantation for it. So I was like, I don't think this is in the movie at all. I think you're right. But I, you know, I might be wrong. I don't know. But I was, I was just reading this and I was like, I don't think leg locking curse is ever brought up in the movies. And so this is like a new thing for, even though I've read this book like probably four times, it's still a new thing for me. Because <laughs> I'm like, this, this doesn't sound familiar. <laughs> I think it would be one of those things that we note and come back to after we've watched the movie. Yes, yes. We would fact check ourselves. Come back and, re- and watch the movie and then... <laughs> talk about how everything that we said wrong (laughs) and then Hermione fixes it she um does the counter curse or whatever to unlock his legs and they talk about um who did it and Neville says Malfoy um he just walked past Malfoy and Malfoy was wanting to use it and he basically hopped all the way back from where he ran into Malfoy to the dorm room which is terrible, and I'm sure that was probably tiring, and I probably would have cried the entire way. Such an awful thing. Poor Neville. Poor Neville. Just poor Neville. But, um, and he's, like, talking about, like, they're telling him to go to to Dumbledore, and he doesn't want to make any more ruckus. Like, he just wants to deal with it and be done. And um, he makes a comment about how he, like, uh, Malfoy has said something like he uh, shouldn't be, he's not brave enough to be in Gryffindor or something along those lines. And I just think how, I just love how much Harry's character, like, shows in this whole scene because Harry's like, you are worth, like, 12 Malfoys or something along those lines. And it just shows how much Harry cares about the people that are being, like bullied and he shows like how much he cares for Neville even though like Neville's kind of this like (laughs) um bumbling idiot sometimes (laughs) but it also like the whole thing with Neville and Malfoy and this leg locking curse like I think it's very important to show Harry and Neville's um personality and character because after this Neville takes what Harry says to heart and Neville becomes braver and Neville becomes more um, confident in himself and starts standing up for himself. And so the scene is so important for Neville's character. Yes, and Neville, they don't really show how much Malfoy bullies Neville in the movie. No, not really. And I think it's because they have to take so much of Neville's character out of the movies that they don't express that. But Malfoy is very mean to poor Neville in the book. So mean. He's always teasing Neville. Neville is always a target. And I do love, though, that later you learn that he does stand up to Malfoy. Yes, he does. And it's just so amazing. It's so great. And you just love Neville even more. Yeah. And it just just shows how, 
Like, it makes more sense on why Neville does what he does later and stands up against Harry, Ron, and Hermione later. Because this whole scene has built Neville's confidence. And now he's more confident in himself. He knows that he belongs in Gryffindor because of Harry validating that. And so now he doesn't have that, that like, self-conscious feeling and he's out there being brave and standing up for himself, which I don't think he would have done if this scene didn't happen. And so it's so sad that they didn't even really show this. Like, I think they just get from Christmas break and Dumbledore showing, like, confronting Harry with the mirror to Hermione finding Nicholas Fumel in a book. Yeah, and I don't think there's another really thing, any, any another thing to address. <laughs> the discovery of Nicholas Flamel is different in the movies. Yes, Hermione is. is the one to discover him in the movies. Yes. However, in the book, Harry recalls his name from the chocolate frogs. Yeah, the yeah, because of the chocolate frogs, he gives um, Neville his last chocolate frog that he got from Hermione for Christmas, and Neville goes, "I know you're collecting these. Here's the card back, and it's Dumbledore." And Harry's staring at Dumbledore, going, "Oh yeah, I've already got this card," and then is like. And it has Nicholas Fumel on the back. And so he's like reading off the back. And then Hermione's like, oh, I know where that is. And goes and finds the rest of the information. But yeah, it is Harry that figures it out first. And then Hermione fills in the blanks. (laughs) But it's not, it's the other way around. Because I think um, Hermione finds it in the book. And then Harry finds it on the back of the card later. Or something like that, I think is kind of how it went. But then um, later, before we get on to the next Quidditch match, Harry is talking about him being nervous for the Quidditch match coming up because Snape's going to be refereeing it. And he's talking about how Snape's um, treating him and treating the gang. And um, he says that he keeps running into Snape no matter where he is. And he starts to think that Snape can read his mind. And this is just a big hint for something later on in the series. And it's in the movies, so I'm not going to spoil anything for you. But Snape is good at legilimency or legilimence or something along those lines. And it's in, I think it's Half-Blood Prince, but I might be wrong. I think it might be the it might be the fifth book I think it might be Order of Phoenix it is Order of the Phoenix because it's when um Harry sees Ron's dead get attacked by the snake that whole scene in the movie where Snape is trying to teach Harry to not let anyone in his head he gets into Harry's head and sees all those visions are you following where I'm at so this is a huge hit to that book they never bring that up in the movies I did not know that yeah this is a huge hint for that (laughs) because I'm sure Snape can read his mind and I'm sure that's what Snape's doing and (laughs) so it just kind of is like hmm makes you think it just amazes me how like when you've seen everything and you go back and you're like that's a hint for the future huh exactly (laughs) so Snape is doing the commentary for the Quidditch match. He is... He is not the commentary. He's the referee. I don't know who does commentary. I don't think okay. they talk about Let the commentary. Let me start that over then. <laughs> so Snape is refereeing the Quidditch match. Yes. And there's that second Quidditch match that never comes up in the movie. No. I feel like it would have been a very important part to put that in the movie because it does show 
how much Snape is against Harry, or at least yeah. that's what they think. Yes, and it and it shows how not necessarily how scared Harry is of going out and playing Quidditch, but just how nerve wracking Harry feels about doing this next Quidditch match because they are so on the Snape train of he's the one that's trying to steal this sorcerer's stone that he is thinking that Snape is going to do something during this Quidditch match to take him out so that he's not a threat anymore. So it just like shows, it It just sets it in more how much Snape is their idea of the bad guy. And it also yes. shows how much um, faith Harry has in Dumbledore too because he feels better when he finds out that Dumbledore is sitting in the stands. And um, you don't really get that feeling of like how Harry feels about Dumbledore until the last scene of the movie because you don't really see Dumbledore during the movie at all. You don't really see, other than the few scenes, you don't really see them interacting with each other. So like the end of the movie, that relationship kind of is is forced. And you it don't, is. You don't really see that building up. You don't really see the trust that Harry has in Dumbledore until that moment. And then there's this transformation, just like there's the first movie, the first Dumbledore. Mm-hmm. And then there's the second movie. Was it the second one for the new Dumbledore? No, the third book is, or that, the third movie is the new that's Dumbledore. That's what it was. Yeah. But they don't really build that relationship. And there are a lot of faults to both, or some faults in the book, books better. But there are quite a bit of faults for the movie. Yes, they do maybe one or two, five things right in the movie, but a lot of the character development and a lot of the relationships are not there. Yeah, and and it makes it so much more forced when um, Harry and Dumbledore are supposed to have this amazing relationship later in the book. And so in the movies, they haven't really built this relationship. And then you get to like the fifth or sixth book when he's supposed to have this amazing relationship with Dumbledore, who's filling him in on everything he needs to know and helping him start building to prepare to fight Voldemort now that Voldemort is back. And you just go from like Dumbledore yelling at Harry in the fourth book about being in this tournament to Dumbledore being his best friend in the sixth movie and you're like hold on where did we get from from A to B like I'm confused on why Dumbledore is so important now when he wasn't really that important in the late in the earlier movies and he he is important from book one very true yeah I just think that's very interesting the other thing that I think this Quidditch event should have been in the movie is because of because of a scene with Neville, Ron, Malfoy, and his two little buddies fighting. I think that this scene is ingenious and I wish it would have been in the movies. Like it just shows that Ron and Neville finally like snap on Malfoy and stand up for themselves and like attack him. And it's like, it's so character revealing when after that fight, they're like, yeah, I gave Malfoy a black eye, like that kind of part. And it just like, shows so much more of that that them as characters they would fight Malfoy and Crabbe and Goyle while Hermione is like watching Harry to make sure Harry doesn't die (laughs) that whole scene was just like it should have just been in the movie because it's gold it's gold (laughs) 
Yes. So there's the Quidditch match that happens. They win. Congratulations. The fight yes. between Malfoy and Neville. And then Harry goes to the locker room or whatever. Yeah. And then later on, he he's like discovers leaving the locker room. Yes, he, he's leaving the locker room and then he flies over. He follows Snape and Cor, or does he follow Cor? Either one, he follows. So someone. he leaves the locker room and he sees Snape cloaked and running into the forest. And so he hops on his broom and follows yes. them into the forest. This scene in the book is so revealing, it incriminates. Snape so much that you have to look back at the end of the book and be like well this dialogue that Snape had how does that make sense how does it figure that Snape isn't the bad guy because he was dropping words and everything that you were sitting there and you were like oh god I mean I've watched the movie I know Coral's bad guy But I was reading this book and I was like, how is Snape not the bad guy here? Yeah, because he literally says, have you figured out how to get past Fluffy? Yes. He literally says that. And so you're you're reading this book and you're like, what? (laughs) You're like, Like, what? Was he involved (laughs) secretly or was he undercover for Voldemort or something? Like there was something in there that I felt was missed out or left out and they didn't add that part to the movie. I kind of understand why they didn't though. I think they should have because I think that it would have made more of the ending part where Harry is like, you're not Snape or like, um, you or whatever he says at the end when he walks into the area and it's Coral standing there in front of the mirror. It makes more sense on why he's so confused at that moment because like this conversation right here is so incriminating for Snape, but I don't think that it ever gets explained fully what side he was on at that time. Like, I don't know if he was trying to hint at Quarrel to help because Voldemort's on, on the back of his head and Snape's still supposed to show like some type of allegiance to Voldemort. But I don't know. I don't know what I don't know what Snape was doing. I don't know what side Snape might have been on. I don't know if he was in that moment doing the double agent thing that he does later on. It's not fully explained. The only thing that's explained is that Snape was trying to figure out how much Coral knew. And that's why he asked that question. So it makes you wonder like why he asked it in that way. <laughs> It's like you could have asked in a different way on if he knew something without making yourself look that incriminating. All right, so we're going to end it here because we're about it. We've been talking for about an hour now and um, we could probably keep talking. We didn't even make it to chapter 14. So we're just going to end it here at chapter 13 and start the next episode on chapter 14. Yes, and then we will talk about Norbert in the Norwegian Ridgeback. Yes, we'll get started on the dragon that's barely in the movie. <laughs> but barely, has, and it was But it has over. such a big, like, important part of the book. <laughs> so, yes. So but anyways, we won't get there. <laughs> yes, yeah, stay tuned.
soon for chapter 14 in the next episode. Hopefully we'll have one more episode and then we will finish book one and then jump into book two after we have a thorough discussion about our favorite parts in the first book. Yes, we have to talk about our favorite parts. We just can't leave you hanging without that. So absolutely not. (laughs) If you had any great discussion points that you wish we would have hit on during these three chapters that we talked about, or if you have ideas on what you think Dumbledore saw in the mirror, or if what you might have seen in the mirror if you were Harry Potter, um, feel free to email us at discount ticket number two world unknown at protonmail.com. We would love to hear your opinions and what you think of the few chapters we talked about. We'd also love to hear anything else that you would like to tell us because we would love any input period. (laughs) Absolutely. And if you want to get back to us or make any comments, please visit our social media, Instagram, Facebook. We will love to see you there. Yes. And don't forget, we do have a Patreon page. Just go to patreon.com and look up discount ticket to a world unknown and you can sign up to be a patron and get to see behind the scenes conversations, get to ask us questions, Q&A. You could maybe have your own episode on where you talk about these books with us. You know, you never know until you go to our Patreon. So go check us out there. (laughs) Yes, please do. But thank you for listening. And next episode, we'll be talking about chapter 14 through 17 of Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. Bye.